This is the Workplace Podcast with your host, William Corliss, brought to you in association with Yellowwood, providers of executive coaching, corporate training and facilitation, your external learning and development partner. Each week, we focus on a different aspect of the workplace. We hear from guest speakers who are subject matter experts and are incredibly talented at what they do. These experts will give you a different perspective and insight to work life with the aim of empowering you to take a different path to success in all aspects of work life. These perspectives will include career and personal success, leadership, high performance teams and creating a better work life culture in your organization. Yellowwood, take a different path to success with your career, team and organization. Welcome to the Workplace Podcast. Our guest today needs very little introduction as she returns to the Workplace Podcast for a second time. Joining us today is Sally Helgeson to discuss her new book, Rising Together. Sally Helgeson, cited in Forbes as the world's premier expert on women's leadership, is an internationally best-selling author, speaker and leadership coach. She has been inducted into the Thinkers 50 Hall of Fame, which honours those whose ideas have shaped the field of leadership worldwide. She is also ranked number five amongst the world's thought leaders by Global Gurus. Sally's most recent book, How Women Rise, co-authored with Marshall Goldsmith, examines the behaviours most likely to get in the way of successful women. Rights have been sold in 22 languages. Previous books include The Female Advantage, Women's Ways of Leadership, hailed as the classics in its field and continuously in print since 1990, and The Female Vision, Women's Real Power at Work, which explores how women's strategic insights can strengthen their careers. The Web of Inclusion, a new architecture for building great organisations, was cited in the Wall Street Journal as one of the best books on leadership of all time and is credited with bringing the language of inclusion into business. Sally's next book, Rising Together, How We Can Bridge Divides and Create a More Inclusive Workplace, will be published in February 2023. Sally, welcome back to the Workplace Podcast. Thank you, William. It's a joy to be back with you. It's great. And thank you so much for the advanced reading copy of your new book, Rising Together and How We Can Bridge Divides and Create a More Inclusive Workplace. As you were seeing, I've made lots of notes on this, lots of sticky notes and highlighted and I have many questions for you. So the book right now, I'd like to, to quote Marshall Goldsmith at the start, if that's OK. And he states, I believe that Rising Together is the one of the most important business books of our time. So that brings us to the question, the timing of this book is crucial as we enter the age of incivility. So what what was your 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 inspiration for writing this book? Because there is a lot going on in society right now. Well, my inspiration was very specific. Uh, as you know, having written the web of inclusion, inclusion is a topic I've given a lot of thought to really for almost 30 years since I wrote that book. But I was doing a women's leadership uh, program at, and this is in the book, the Construction Super Conference in Las Vegas, just before the pandemic shut things down. And uh, it was a huge conference and I had a 
relatively small breakout. And I, when I went down to my room at the hotel, my conference room, I figured that I'd have, you know, 100 women or so, 150 who wanted ideas about how to have more satisfying careers and, and strengthen their voice and their contributions. But when I arrived, there were almost 300 people there. It was standing room only. And well over half of them, between 60 and 70% were men. I could not have been more surprised. Uh, it was not the audience I was expecting. So the program I had prepared suddenly felt completely um, uh, inappropriate or you know, just not what was needed. So I started by asking people what had motivated them to come. And the men talked about the difficulty they were having in their industry uh, not just uh, attracting, but especially retaining talented women. Uh, that's who is in the 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 workforce. Uh, this is who is available for hire. So they were concerned that if they did not learn how to become better workplaces for women and for other outsiders to the traditional mainstream that has defined the construction industry, they would not be competitive. But then one man stood up and really put it very bluntly. He said, please, I'd like to ask you not to waste your time telling us why we need to get good at this, which I have to tell you, William, was exactly what I was planning to tell them. <laughs> yeah. Why we need to get good at this. We get it. We understand, we just don't know how to do it. We don't have a clue. And I thought just in the way that How Women Rise has hit such a note with people because it's about the hows, uh, how women can address habits that get in their way, not why they need to do it, but the hows. I thought the hows are really what's missing from this conversation about diversity and inclusion, about creating a more inclusive workplace. We spend, and I have myself spent a lot of time talking about why it's important, why it's necessary. Uh, it's how you engage people. This is who's in the workplace. But what I realize is that's what we need to do. We need to look at creating an inclusive culture in very, very concrete and specific behavioral terms so that we can help people, uh, people of goodwill. And there are many people out there who are of goodwill. They just don't know, as this guy said, we don't get it. Uh, so that's what I wanted to do. So that was my motivation really behind writing that book. I left that conference room thinking, okay, I've got my next book. And what I what I like is that you've approached this book in each chapter. It's about the triggers that we have. So it's more of that behavior based approach. And I like where you quote the work of uh, Pamela New Newkirk about where why unconscious training does not work. Do you want to explain to our listeners why oftentimes unconscious bias training doesn't hit the mark? Um, when we're trying to, I suppose, create a culture of inclusion. Yes, certainly. And uh, 
Pamela Newkirk's work kind of freed me to some extent. She's a journalist uh, and a professor at uh, NYU, I believe. Uh, she's an African-American and she set out to examine the amount of money that was being spent on diversity and inclusion or diversity, equity and inclusion, as they call it more now, uh, programs and initiatives and unconscious bias training around the world and how effective was it in terms of the investment. And she came back with extraordinary research. She's a real researcher showing that how disappointing the results generally were. So she was looking at, at inclusion in, initiatives in general, and in particular also at unconscious bias training. Now I was fascinated because for at least 10 years, I've been hearing from clients who have said, you know, we ran out on unconscious bias training initiative for a couple thousand of our people worldwide. And we haven't seen it, and this is the language they would always use, we haven't seen it move the needle. In other words, it hasn't resulted in the more inclusive culture, which is what we're trying to build. Now, this was not surprising to me. If you look at unconscious bias training, what just a cursory glance helps you know two things. First of all, it's about what's unconscious. <laughs> so it's not in our mind, it's not intentional. And it's about bias. So it is inherently negative. And it comes from a kind of therapeutic model where people talk through, sometimes endlessly, um, what their issues are. And in unconscious bias training, it's often about surfacing what your real biases are. And I understand why this can have some utility, but it is entirely focused on what takes place in our minds. And people don't experience us based on what is the random thoughts that happen to be running through our minds. They experience us based upon our behavior, how we treat them. As Maya Angelou said, um, people don't remember what we did or what we said, they remember how we made them feel. And that, that comes across in our behaviors, how we approach them. So I thought it's not surprising that focusing on the negative thoughts in people's heads without any kind of program of action would not be that successful. It's kind of, as I talk about it in the book, aha moment, now what? <laughs> what do you do? What do you do with these insights? Uh, so I think that that's, that that's been problematic and that it's much more helpful to people to give them some practices and tools that can help them. And it kind of doesn't matter what they think, plus which it's easier for us to act our way into new ways of thinking than to think our way into new ways of acting. If we behave in a certain way, we start getting different responses from people. It feels good, it gets easier, and then our thinking patterns begin to change. So, so I'm a much bigger advocate of that approach, 
but it hasn't existed in the workplace necessarily. I think that unconscious bias training has been kind of a default for companies looking for what they can do. So I that's been one of my big ambitions with this book is to is to help organizations move away from only having the unconscious bias training as an option for their diversity and inclusion programs and have something that's more behaviorally based. And that's what I like in this book. It's that positive actions and behavior based to say, here are things that we can learn to do more and then realize that we have that self-awareness or situational awareness then to change our behaviors that would be more inclusive rather than hoping that we have the self-awareness for unconscious bias when exactly that's what it is. We cannot be conscious. So that brings me to the question then about triggers then. What you mentioned on Twitter recently was triggers can be hyperactive in the workplace because all kinds of things can set us off. How one colleague's talks, another's use of humor, how meetings are run, how projects get assigned. The thing is, we cannot control triggers. They are environmental, they are part of the package. So is it that we're writing about triggers here to highlight for people's awareness then that this is what I need to be looking out for? Is that is that what the approach of the book is? Not necessarily to be hyper aware about triggers. It's more to recognize when you may be triggered and so that you can frame an intentional response rather than being reactive and assuming that the person who triggered you is a bad person, is out to get you, is a real jerk, etc. Let me give you an example. Say someone tells a joke that you think is not just not terribly funny, but could be offensive either to you or to other people that you've seen. So to some degree, that triggers you. Now, the the suppressive approach would be for an organization basically to ban humor or to release, and one company I know did this, a list of acceptable jokes and topics for jokes. This is what? not a workplace <laughs> most of us would want to live or work in, I don't think. Um, and, uh, but, but so how do we, how can we make this constructive? If we're aware of the fact that we're being triggered by something in the environment, in this case, a joke that makes us uncomfortable that someone told, then we can figure out how we're going to respond. An ineffective kind of response is to grab somebody that we're sure would agree with us about this joke and start talking about it. You know, God, he has the worst taste. I can't believe he said that. Uh, you know, I used to think he was a great guy, but wow, that really blew it, etc. If you can do that, that's not constructive. And I would suggest that, that lots of those kinds of responses uh, add up to create a fairly toxic workplace. Uh, but when you're aware of the whole mechanism of triggers and the fact that that you want to find a way that serves your best interest and the best interests of the people around you to those triggers, then you can figure out whether, you know, ah, it's kind of tasteless, I'm going to let it go, 
or you can figure out whether you want to say something. You know, I know you're a good guy. I've had interactions with you. And I want to tell you that you may not been, have been aware of it, but I don't think that what you said was in, um, was the kind of joke that really creates an inclusive culture on our team. I think there's a potential to undermine some of the team harmony about it. Yeah, well, what did you mean? I mean, why would you say that? I think, I don't know who would get offended by X, Y, or Z. You say, you know, that that line about whatever uh, could be uh, interpreted by somebody in this sort of way. You can't control how the person responds. They might say, well, I'm sorry you're so uptight and walk off. Okay, fine. They more likely, if they're, you know, a, a, a person who's kind of open, they'll say, wow, thanks for, for letting me know. Or, you know, or, you know, I'm going to have to think about that. I think I'll ask my wife. I think I'll ask, you know, somebody else in my office, get another opinion. Great. Terrific. Um, I may be wrong. Uh, gather a consensus. So then you start to open a conversation with this person about what's appropriate. You get other people involved. They get other people involved. And it becomes a positive interaction uh, rather than an occasion to feel uptight, offended, infuriated, or to create sort of a gossip uh, circle around it that's going to try to punish in some way this individual. Uh, it's a way of giving people, I call it giving people the benefit of goodwill. And this is what you talk about in the book as well as you, you navigate us through the landmines that humor can bring. And this is where I was saying to myself, not only do we have the woke police, no, we might have the joke police. Uh, so you can you can use that. You can quote me if you want, Sally. I want the woke police and the joke police. Yep. <laughs> A lot of people, when they use humor, you go into this in, uh, I think it's chapter eight. Uh, I could be wrong on that. And when you talk about humor, then why do we use humor in the workplace? Because that can be very triggering for people. And you you said before about your experience as a scriptwriter that it was nearly, you had to have a joke at the start of every every speech. Is it that we use it to build connection with people, to be more affable, see it as the go-to person. Why do, why do we use humor in the workplace? Well, I think there are a number of reasons that we use it. And humor is way too valuable to lose to the joke police. That's one of the reasons I was motivated to write this chapter. We don't want to lose humor. Humor is a way of having fun. I mean, it really just is. When 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 people are laughing, they're having a good time. It they're not faking it. They're enjoying themselves. They're engaged. They're having, you know, positive neurons, oxy oxytocin, whatever it is, flowing through their brains. They feel closer. You feel closer to people that you can share a laugh with. Uh, that's a, a very very important thing. We do not want to lose humor in the workplace. Uh, lose humor in the workplace. And I'm trying to kind of, as I said in the book, I'm on a mission to save it by helping people understand that there are a lot of different ways to deal with uh, 
humor that's problematic and encourage humor that's not. Uh, but there are other ways people use it as well. I was, what you're referring to was my um, years in the 80s as a uh, speechwriter for executives and how they always wanted to start, every single speech had to be a, a joke, maybe two jokes, but they were very canned jokes and they weren't good joke tellers for the most part. It was what it felt like to me was they were telling a joke so they could kind of get you know, showing that they had a personality out of the way and then proceed to be as dull as they wanted to be. So for some people, you know, it's a way of kind of trying to have a personality without really having a, much of a personality. So I think there's there's also that, uh, you know, it can be an attempt to fit in. And a lot of humor misfires are actually attempts by people to fit in. They've heard someone else tell this kind of joke, so now they want to tell this kind of joke. So there are all kinds of reasons um, that humor is really, really important. Uh, and we we need to save it, we need to save it. And But the way to save it is to have ways of being able to assess. And it's more, you know, it, people are more sensitive than they were. And there are also a lot more ways in which people can be offended. Um, you know, you, you can't tell a joke about someone who had a heart attack on a golf course in a meeting because somebody might just have had a heart attack or their husband's had a heart attack and, and they'll take offense at it. That wouldn't have been true some years ago. So we want a way to be able to assess how do we use humor to build relationships and make people feel a part of and strengthen our teams and how do we address humor that as i put it misfires uh without ostracizing or changing our minds about the person who misfired i'm not talking about a pattern of aggressive you know racist or homophobic or uh you know anti-female jokes that somebody is always trying to share. That's different. That's a toxic behavior. It's hostile. It's harassment. You tell us in the book about different types of humor. We have intrinsic humor. We have self-deprecating humor. So can we start off with intrinsic humor? And you have a great anecdote about Madeleine Albright and the Russian spying. I think this is brilliant. So you don't actually have to say anything it's it's using that physical presence. So can you tell us about Madeleine Albright or the U.S. Secretary of State? Yeah, I'm talking about how humor doesn't always have to necessarily be words. So Madeleine Albright was U.S. Secretary of State um, under uh, Obama, I think, first term. And she uh, they discovered that the Russian embassy was listening in from a park bench in front of the State Department, and this had never happened in U.S. history that anyone was aware of. So they were there's somebody. There were bugs out on the bench, and they were picking up conversations inside the State Department. Now, when they found this out, they found this out on a Thursday afternoon and Friday morning. She had a meeting with a figure who became very <laughs> familiar to us, uh, Sergei Lavrov, who was at that time the Foreign Minister and uh, of Russia, and she had a meeting with him in Washington. And she had to figure out, you know, I need to convey to him 
that we know this is going on, that we uh, need this to stop. Um, she said, but I wanted to do it in a way that that didn't hijack the whole conversation we were going to have because it was a big deal. So what she did was she, she's a big wearer of pins. She always would have a pin. She went into her jewel box and she found she had a very big, very dramatic, heavily jeweled pin of a bug. And she put the bug on her lapel in a very prominent place. She walked in the next morning, shook hands with the, with the foreign minister. And of course, you've got a language barrier there too. Shook hands with the a foreign minister. They exchanged some greetings with translation. And she went like this. Just went like this, pointed to the bug. She didn't make the point, the bug, the bench or anything like that. It was just like, okay, we know. And um, he looked at her in shock. And then they both burst out laughing. So the way she handled it was she let him know in no uncertain terms that we knew and that this we were going to do something about it. But she handled it in a way that provoked uh, a shared moment of humor, which is just brilliant. You know, it's part of what a great diplomat is able to do. And I like how you are doing your utmost to defend humor in the wor workplace. Um, a lot of people are so afraid of being offensive in any way. And that brings me to the point then where when we talk about microaggressions and sometimes universities in America, how they are sometimes shielding uh, younger generations from microaggressions and from this workplace, are we doing a disservice to them? I think we're doing a disservice. Yes, I do. I think the language of microaggressions basically means you want to be able to have some skill at, at discerning hostile intent in small comments. That's that's a good thing to have some awareness. But I, I don't believe that we want to judge people who find themselves saying something that somebody else might possibly take offense at um, in a kind of a innocent or, or even ill-judged way and i think that they're i think that often in the universities they are creating a hyper awareness of uh, uh, uh you know politically incorrect behavior and guess what these young people are going to be out in the workplace where there are all kinds of situations all kinds of people they're going to have to deal with them and if they're always on high alert for what might offend them or high alert for what might offend someone else, uh, they're not gonna be able to forge strong and effective relationships. People are gonna kind of, well, you know, I'm worried about uh, being around her because she seems very eager to judge people based on, on one little thing. So I think it becomes hard to uh, as I said, give people the benefit of our goodwill when we are when we have been trained to be on high alert for ways in which they may not um, be conforming to a certain standard. 
And that's where it's getting the balance right between vigilance and hypervigilance. And you talk about that in your book as well, about that self-awareness and situational awareness. And speaking about balance, then that brings me to give a whole chapter on confidence and competence. Now, any leadership development program, especially when it's focused on women and it's not exclusively for women uh, either, as we spoke before in the last podcast, the role of confidence in the workplace and competence, do we overvalue one versus the other? Just tell me a bit more because I still have clients and people coming up to me to say, I've got a confidence issue, especially when I'm going for a job. You know, can you can you help us navigate that question to confidence and competence? I think we've gotten to a slightly strange time when we view competence. I mean, when we view confidence as kind of a standalone quality that you either have or you don't have. Uh, confidence is best tied, most effectively tied to competence. We feel confident when we recognize that we are either, we do have the skills that a certain situation may require of us, or if we don't have the skills, we have enough experience and really enough uh, connections and support to be able to find the answers and the practices and build the skills that we'll need. So that's really what confidence is. It's very much rooted in either having competence or knowing how you can develop the competence you'll need to meet a certain situation. But it, it's often treated as if it's something that's completely untethered to competence. It's just, you know, you're confident. You you walk into a room, you think you're great. You think everybody's going to love you. Okay, that's fine. Sounds a little more like arrogance, but it is, it, 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 it untethers it from, from competence. Research shows that um, indeed com competence is more effective for a successful job performance than confidence. And yet with women, we're, we're constantly urging them, be more confident, be more con confident. Well, I don't think it's great advice. I think the advice is learn how to really represent your competencies in a strong way so that you can be clear about what they are and then build the kind of support network you will need to get help when you need a competency or skill in a certain situation that you have not yet developed or accessed. So that's, I, I think that we're kind of women are getting a bad rap there. Often women are feeling, yeah, I've got a confidence problem. Well, you know, okay, that's fine. Why don't you just look at what you're good at and figure out a great way to talk about it? That's more effective than trying to build, you know, it's that sort of, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm wonderful. I'm, uh, you know, the Stuart Smiley, the old Stuart Smiley used to do on Saturday Night Live. I'm, I'm wonderful. I'm, I'm uh, beautiful. And by gosh, people like me, you know, these mantras saying how great you are. Eh, I don't know. It, it, it seems like it's not a, a, a really sustainable track. 
the other thing, and just briefly that we talk about in the book, and this goes to the brilliant research of Tomas Chamorro Pre Music, who wrote a book on, you know, why are there so many uh, terrible male leaders? I don't remember the exact title, but that was sort of the gist of it. And he said that overconfidence, overconfidence is much more common in men than in women. And that organizations are very poor at assessing overconfidence. That is confidence not tied to competency in men. And that's why there's so many men who just take organizations up in flames. Um, uh, despite their stellar reputation, we see examples of that every year uh, because uh, they exhibit a confidence uh, an overconfidence that's so strong that everybody kind of assumes, well, they must know what they're talking about. And that's wonderful advice I received a couple of years ago is have it evidence-based. Here's what I can definitely demonstrate. And the other thing is the evidence-based is, is when I didn't know how I had the development or the capacity to learn that competence. And you speak about that in, in the book. So that brings me back to one of the triggers Then you speak about. There was a guy, Alex, that you had talked about in the book. And Alex was doing his best to be engaged in a diversity and inclusion program. And again, when it came to that level playing field, he kind of had this sense, even though he didn't verbalize it, he didn't feel he could have a place to verbalize. Well, I don't think this is fair. I don't think I have privilege. Could you talk us through that scenario? Because I think this is something that a lot of people will talk about. These are the, the silent majority often seen in society or in the workplace to go, OK, you've got privilege or check your privilege at the door, which can be, I suppose, incendiary for some people. In Sender, yes. And this is an example of unconscious bias training gone bad, uh, which is not terribly uncommon. Uh, but, uh, you know, I have to say that I've, I've seen some unconscious bias trainings that were were helpful. But this here, this was a bad one. And this is not uncommon. Uh, this guy, Alex, was an engineer. He was a great guy, and he had been in an engineering school where his whole study group was women. So he entered the workplace feeling like he was someone who got along better with women than men. Uh, early in his career, maybe five years in, his company uh, was featured in a big article that was a national article on companies that were really falling behind on their hiring and promotion of women, especially promotion. And his company was listed as one of those in the bottom, I don't know, 20% in the country. So the CEO reacted to that and said, okay, we're gonna change everything. It's all gonna be different from now on. We're going to, you know, uh, uh, managers, their salary and their bonus is gonna be dependent on how many women they promote. We're going to have you know quotas for how many women get promoted, et cetera. And then we're going to do this un unconscious bias training. So Alex went off to the unconscious bias training that he was mandated to go to. And uh, when he got, he was late. So when he got to his hotel room, there was a kit for him for the next morning. And there was a big box. And on it, it said, check your privilege. It had a slot in the top. 
And the instructions were to write down on pieces of paper all the different ways you were privileged and then put them in the box. And Alex felt like he had not had that many privileges. His family had been poor. He was the first person in his uh, family to go to college. He had had to work his way through, so it took him six years, et cetera, et cetera. He didn't feel like he'd had that many privileges. You know, he put down my intact family, a couple of things like that, but he, that he could think of, but he said he knew that he had to put on a slip of paper, white male as a source of his privilege, even though how things were in the company now, being a white male was not much of an advantage because the company's entire commitment was to promoting women. And as Alex said, that's fine. He said, I, I've, I've watched women get passed over for years. He said, I'm not against that. But he said, I felt really weird because I had to put, I knew that if I didn't put white white, uh, white man as one of my privileges, um, that I'd get, get beaten up the next day in the training. And sure enough, someone got beaten up right before him. They said, why didn't you put white male in? That's the biggest privilege of them all and on and on. And what I realized when I was talking to Alex, because I interviewed him a couple of years ago, uh, to get a story in here, is that there really is in some of these trainings, there's almost a hierarchy of bias. So some people are encouraged to speak out about what what they've gone through, but other people, you know, who may be more in the ma mainstream, the white male, et cetera, um, they can't be honest about what they're feeling. And that's how Alex felt. And I think this is one of the reasons that these kinds of trainings, in addition to often being ineffective, can be very unproductive because they can take somebody who's a person of goodwill and turn him more toward feeling, you know, huh, I'm really getting the short end of the stick around here. Uh, so that's not that's not where we want to be. So in your book, you mention reverse privilege. I'm fascinated by this term, reverse privilege. Reverse privilege is something that's often used in a political context in the United States. For example, in exactly this uh, situation we've been talking about, the company decides they are going to <clears throat> promote a lot of women. The company decides they want to promote a lot of minorities. So people who are discontented with that because they feel that you know it was their place they're they're a white man they're a white person whatever they can bring charges of reverse privilege and that kind of can take situations off the rails so that's generally how that's used that term is used in 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 the united states there's one section of the book and i think it is wonderful you've adapted this is what does it mean to be professional? I think in this day and age, it's come a gray area of somewhat. So what does it mean to be a professional? I think that basically being a professional is being someone who studies the competencies that are required for your field, who shows up, uh, who doesn't, you know, complain unduly about, uh, you know, the requirements, 
and and you know who really demonstrates uh, that they have a commitment to what they're supposed to be doing. And there's a, a certain degree of which being a professional means you're not endlessly talking about all the problems you have with them. Why did they do this? And et cetera, et cetera. You're, you're just kind of, you've got the overriding commitment to show up and do your job and do it well and bring other people along on the journey. Where I think it's gotten a little gray or muddy, as you say, uh, is that people are so often encouraged these days to bring your authentic self to work, to be your authentic self, and to consult your authentic self. And, you know, I understand where a lot of this came from. There are people in the workplace who have had to repress everything that was real about them, particularly uh, minorities, women, certainly, and just kind of play the game. And, you know, I'm no different than a guy and, you know, just join the culture and that that's involved a certain amount of self-repression. So I get it. I understand where it came from. But I think that we probably do a little too much encouragement of people to always be their authentic selves, because people always say, you know, I'm really not enjoying um, this part of my job. I feel like I need to be authentic. What should I do? Uh, should I discuss it? Should I try to get rid of this? Well, it depends. If it's integral to your job, then no, you know, it, it, okay, fine. That You don't see that part as so fulfilling. Look at the bigger picture. So what I find is it's more, it's it's valuable to think about how to balance authenticity with professionalism. Uh, they can seem like they're opposing, but you can always find a way to put those together by saying, you know, okay, really, this isn't what I feel like doing at this moment, but this is part of the job and this, I've got a bigger objective here. So I'm going to try to do it with as much finesse and good humor as is possible, because that's what it takes to be a professional. And can you talk us through the authenticity trap? Because a lot of people, a bit like you were saying before, I thought authenticity nowadays is supposed to be a good thing. So what's that trap? What's an example of that for our listeners and that they can avoid? Well, I think it can be a trap when you're encouraged to uh, share your thoughts or uh, act on behaviors that are not going to serve you based on the rationale that you're being true to yourself in that situation. So that you will, you're feeling a certain lack of confidence in your ability to make some sales. You feel that it's going to be authentic to tell the head of the sales team, you know, I really feel that I lack the stomach for this, that I lack the, the desire to make these sales. You know, I'm just being authentic. I'm just telling you how I feel. Okay, fine. You got that off your chest. But how is that going to help you? You know, next time he or she is going to say, no, you know, I, I think I won't give that assignment to her because I won't give that um, that opportunity to her because she doesn't really seem that engaged. You think you're just being authentic and saying how you feel in the moment, but it has an impact on how you're viewed. It doesn't serve your long-term interest 
or your development. Doesn't serve your development either. So it's very good to think, but yet we, because we're so encouraged to be authentic at all moments, we feel as if we're being untrue to ourselves, even when we share something like that. So that's problematic. The other side of it, of course, is the people who feel like, I just gotta be me. I just gotta call them like I see them, you know? you know, women aren't up to this job, whatever it is, you know, these kinds of stereotypes, uh, bigotry, et cetera, people feel that the authenticity, uh, you know, the, the privileging of authenticity almost demands that they share that. In our last podcast, we talked about someone else maybe taking, I suppose, that reward or claim for your efforts or contributions, they're getting the, the limelight. And Sally might say to herself, I literally just said that five minutes ago. So you have a lovely technique uh, called the interpersonal Aikido technique. Have I pronounced that correctly? Uh, Aikido. Aikido. Okay. So can you talk us through that? So I'm in a meeting. I said something. I might be... Uh, uh, a man of minority or I might be a woman and somebody else is claiming credit for something I said. What do I yeah. do? You know, usually our, uh, we have one of two responses. We can be very, uh, generally we'll feel bad and then we'll grab somebody that we know and say, can you believe that guy? You know, I he he's always doing that and we can't get any credit around here and men always or whatever. That happens a lot. I've watched that happen <laughs> for the 50 years I've been in the workplace. So it's completely ineffective. It can kind of give us an opportunity to vent and feel a little better, but it does nothing to remedy the situation. An alternative is we can often feel that we've got to call them on it in a way that makes clear. I just said that, you know, that kind of thing. So that you interrupt the whole flow and claim uh, claim that idea as your territory. Uh, usually when that's done, it's somewhat defensive and awkward and you end up feeling weird about it afterwards. I mean, I've done it, you know, and you walk out and think, you know, why did I say that? But I had to say something. So more useful is to pretend this again goes against the authenticity thing to pretend that that person is really building on your idea or pretend that that person in your mind, this is, oh, that person maybe repeated what I said because he thought it was so important and he wanted to make sure everyone heard it. So you kind of frame it in your mind as something that this person did out of goodwill uh, not to try to step on your idea. And then you can say, oh, you know, William, thank you. Thank you for um, affirming what I just said. I'm glad to know that you agree with my idea. And not in like, I'm gl glad to know you agree with my idea where you're saying it was mine, but I'm glad to know you agree with my idea. So just treating that person as an ally because you're assuming they repeated that to support you. What are they going to say? 
wait a minute, no, I wasn't trying to support you. I was trying to claim credit for your idea. They suddenly feel like, oh yeah, I am this wonderful person who's trying to support her by echoing her idea. And then you can go up to them afterwards and say, you know, I'm glad we're on the same page. Maybe we should think about how we could um, work on that together. You've already lost full credit for what you've done. That's gone. It's not coming back because the other person chose to repeat it. So now treat them as an ally and find, is there a way we can move forward on this? So it, it kind of, I call it Aikido because in Aikido, when you've got someone coming towards you, it's a martial art, you don't find a way to attack them. You get out of their way. You just get out of their way and you let them fall into the wall, the floor, you, whatever. Uh, so you, you give them that space. And then the two of you are sort of in a, in a duet. So it's a very interesting disarming technique that's used in Aikido. And I think we can adapt it uh, in situations uh, like the one that you just presented. And that's in chapter two for our listeners there. And you have it framed under those alternative scripts. What an, what's another way to do that? And it, it, then we don't get caught up in that negativity against that person. It's assuming goodwill. And even if it's not goodwill, at least we've created a boundary to go, you know what, I might call you up on that again. So you know I'm going to address this if you keep doing it. There's, there's a signal there, isn't there? There, there really is a signal and it's a very effective thing to do. And one of the things that's become obvious since I wrote about it, I've had a number of men talk to me about how they recommended a woman for a job or their colleague recommended a woman for a job. And the woman didn't want the job. She said, no, I'm not ready for that. I don't have the skills or it's not really what I'm looking for right now, et cetera, et cetera. And the more he thought about it, the more he thought it, that that was a good job for her and that that would be a good, good move for her. And being able to express that in a way that's helpful uh, really gave these guys, you know, reframed the script. Oh, here's how the script would get reframed. Oh, okay. She doesn't want that job. I guess she lacks ambition. Maybe she's going to have a baby next year. She probably has a husband who doesn't want to take up some extra slack. Telling yourself a couple of reasons that she doesn't want that job. Uh, what they these couple of guys were able to do instead was reframe it. Okay, this is kind of common with women where they may not feel ready for a job. I know that she has the skills to be able to do this superbly. So I am going to uh, both press her and support her. So they, it's, it's reframing in your mind, your story, you're telling yourself about why someone else is doing something. And in all these cases, they were able to push a woman into a fantastic position uh, that ended up with major success. And then they were an instrumental player in that success. So it created a very strong and fruitful relationship. 
And in the book, you give us many different enablers, whether it's nominating people, enlisting people. And we're going to leave the, the podcast on this because, you know, I, I appreciate your time. So you talk about the grapevine versus the network and how do we recognize we're in a grapevine and what's a healthy network? What does that look like? Because I sometimes think, you know, we're trying to do positive actions here, yet we fall into certain traps in our networks. Yes, that's exactly right. We really want to, you know, I'm a big believer in the idea that we can't do whatever it is we're trying to do alone. We need other people's support. We need their thoughts. We need them to talk about us. We need to develop the kind of support systems that enable us to achieve our full potential and find a way of being in the world that's very rewarding and also sustainable and has an impact, a positive impact on other people. That's very hard. We can't do that alone. So we need to get skilled at enlisting allies. It is important when doing that, that we, that we do it in a way that doesn't develop into kind of a toxic environment where people are gossiping and talking about one another, sharing stories that don't that aren't necessarily helpful to the conversation. There is so much of this in the workplace. These I call that kind of network a grapevine because a grapevine is a system that is designed to share information that can be helpful but may not be helpful gossip, unverified stories, etc., passing them along the grapevine. And it people who use grapevines are generally tend to be people who don't have much power. And the grapevine keeps them stuck because of the negative uh, and unproductive kind of conversation and relationships that characterize uh, a, a, a grapevine. What we want to do is we want to, to help our grapevines transition into true networks by uh, bringing in, you know, positive actions we can take to help the other people in them and also ways in which we can get concrete help. So it's what I do in the book is I talk about the practices of the grapevine and the practices of the network so that you can, if you identify that you're part of a grapevine, you can begin to either move out of that into something more positive that's gonna be more helpful or help if they're people you really care about, help that grapevine develop more network, healthy network behaviors where people are really focused on creating you know, good for other people along with themselves. Sally, thank you so much for being part of my network. And we've come to the end of the podcast today. Thank you again for your precious time. If people were to find more about the book and to contact you more about your services, how might they do so? Well, the book will be, as noted, published uh, in the U.S. February 28th by Hachette and widely available, you know, on every online uh, distributor. Uh, Hachette has 
acquired what they call the non-North American English language rights, which means Ireland, England, Middle East, India, Singapore, Australia, uh, et cetera, not Canada, Canada's um, uh, US and uh, in North American. And um, and that book will probably be out a couple weeks later. I don't have the exact um, date, but if anybody has any trouble finding it, let me know uh, because I'll have distributor names uh, who can easily uh, help you. But it will it'll be a big launch here in the U.S., so it'll be on Amazon, etc. And I would uh, certainly imagine that they'll quickly get it on Amazon, um, uh, Ireland, and UK. Uh, so that's that's with the book. And for everything else, uh, I have a website. It's got a big contact button. Contact uh, Sally Helgeson goes right through to my email. You can get in touch with me. And of course, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. And uh, you and I exchange Twitters a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Your name so uh, comes up on my Twitter feed a lot. Uh, so on both uh, LinkedIn and, and Twitter, not Facebook. Uh, so that's how people can get in touch with me. Sally, thank oh. you so much. I should also add that I have a, a newsletter on Substack that people really like and that goes deep into a lot of the topics that we've been talking about. Sally, a fountain of knowledge. Thank you so much for all your efforts for inclusion for the last uh, few decades. And it's been so great to have you on, on the Workplace Podcast. Oh, thank you, William. I really enjoy uh, talking to you as always. Thanks for listening to the Workplace Podcast with your host, William Corliss. Our special thanks to this episode's guest for sharing their expertise with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please download and share it. For updates on future episodes and to get in contact with us about any workplace topics, please follow Yellowwood on LinkedIn and Twitter at Different Paths. As always, you can head over to yellowwood.ie for any other information. Yellowwood your external learning and development partner, provider of executive coaching, facilitation and training. Take a different path to success with your career, leadership, team and organization.